This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is our second episode where we discuss Steinbeck's famous play novelette, Of Mice and Men. And today we're going to be discussing chapters one and two. We're going to focus on the many characters that are introduced in this book and important thematic elements. But first, before we do that, I have the Christie fun fact for you. Oh no, back to this. We've actually had a request for these, so we're going to throw them in there. I want you all to know that Christie is a terrible winner. <laughs> she is a gloater and excessively gleeful when she wins at whatever game we play. Well, that is true, but I'm actually a great opponent because I don't often win. I'm a mediocre athlete, so when I do, I enjoy every minute of it. Well, it's not true <laughs> that you don't win very often, but uh, yes, you you ring out more oh. glory and joy from a victory than anybody I know. So if you ever see Christine, you have to take her on in checkers or foosball or anything like that. Just be prepared. <laughs> So, anyway. Okay, well, that's a bit of a characterization. Uh, I think that's truth. Uh, and we are going to talk a lot about characterization this week. Uh, last week we talked about the fact that uh, Of Mice and Men was written in a way that could basically be lifted up off the page and performed as is. Now, what that means is that most of the story or the characters in the story are are characterized or described indirectly, and we're going to get into that pretty seriously. But before uh, we jump into the story and we start talking about who these people are, I would like to go back and mention one more thing that I mentioned last week about Steinbeck himself uh, and what he's trying to do when he writes this book. I mentioned that he was a naturalistic writer, and I really think he is, although he kind of claims he was more modern, la-di-da, but... uh, (laughs) Whatever, he's a, a bit of both worlds. But I, I want to talk about naturalism because it's, if you think of this book as a naturalist novel, it really helps you understand how to read it. Now, 
Uh, I'm going to lift this definition right out of the Britannica Encyclopedia so that it can be um, clear for everybody and you don't have to try to muddle through someone's interpretation of what it is. Well, I appreciate that because we all need to know what naturalism is (laughs) as a point of view for a writer. You say that almost like when my kids say, this is important, and and they mean it is not important, but it is. It actually is important because it's going to help you uh, understand why the book unfolds the way it does. I think it does. So what we have in American literature is we have this progression of writing styles, and we start off, you know, with the Puritans, and that's one style, and then we're going to get into... The, you know the patriots and they wrote a certain way and then we're going to get into some realism and then we're going to get into naturalism and naturalism is really influenced by scientific determinism and so what it means is and i'm going to read this that authors try to emphasize man's accidental physiological nature rather than his moral or rational qualities individual characters were seen as helpless products of heredity and environment motivated by strong instinctual drives from within and harassed by social and economic pressures from without. As such, they had little will or responsibility for their fates and the prognosis for their, quote, cases was pessimistic at best. So in other words, it's this Darwinism mm-hmm. and you're applying it to the way people live their lives. It's that idea of observing nature, observing people, but it, it has a really strong environmental component. In other words, things are gonna the strong is gonna survive and the weak never have a chance. Now as a small person, I never want to believe that. <laughs> but you know, that's the way that uh, a naturalist would perceive the world. Okay. So it's very much evolutionary based. And so we're gonna take that attitude and insert it into the a literary style. And I think that really does hold true for this work. And the interesting thing about naturalism is what we discussed in last episode. It only has two parts. You're a product of either nature or nurture or a combination of the two, whereas other writers would throw in, no, there's a third element, which is human agency and your ability to act on your environment or to change these these attitudes. Steinbeck really clearly drives it down the nature versus nurture, deterministic, naturalistic view and we're going to see where that shows up in this writing. And I think it's important to understand that because it gives a certain flavor to the characters. Now, uh, one thing I want to say about, about this is that uh, Steinbeck is an artist. And artists reflect culture, whether they're painters or musicians or whether they're writers. They, in, they get into the business of interpreting the past and the meanings for the future through their current worldview, which in this case was Steinbeck in 1937. Um, it's why archaeologists study ancient art, and it's really what art history majors study. They study the snapshot uh, of the moment in time that was created by an artist. So um, I mention that because I personally like to harp on the idea of my favorite phrase historically, the arrogance of the present, where people take the, the moment they're in right now and interpret all of the past and project themselves in the future based on the bias of their current worldview. And you know, artists can be really helpful in detailing the culture of the moment, but they can be guilty of interpreting that meaning through kind of a stationary static worldview, in this case, naturalism. So I'm making the case here that Steinbeck is going to give us an interpretation of the future based on naturalism and the idea that you're just this victim bouncing around inside of, 
naturalism and nature versus nurture debate. Now, um, I feel like you might disagree with me on that. Well, I mean, that's certainly true, clearly, and it's true in The Grapes of Wrath. You know, he sees man as being a recipient of all these terrible things, and that's true, but naturalist books aren't really well read and the reason why they're not is because who wants to read that that's so dark and you're just you're going to be depressed and naturalism leads to nihilism oh absolutely it does so naturalism as a genre didn't really thrive as well as other literary genres so uh naturalist novels like you said are not as widely read so my question to you is why is this one? This is one of the, if, like I mentioned earlier in the last podcast, if you're not an American, the book that most non-Americans have read out of the American canon is this book. So if this book is nihilistic and it's of a genre that's not that popular, why does it transcend and why is it intriguing? Well, because it's not a pure naturalistic book. It's not totally scientific. And we see these elements of optimism and we've you know, clearly under the surface. So it's dark, but it isn't so dark. We're not completely disavowing human potential or human opportunity, even though it kind of looks like we might be. Uh, We'll see this really clearly in chapter three, and I think it's easier to see. This book really highlights racism and man's cruelty to man and oppression, and, and they do this to this one character who is a black man who works on the farm, but he can't live in the bunkhouse. He has to live outside of the bunkhouse and and with the animals, which is, of course, it's clearly mean. You can see that it's mean. It's superficially mean. But what does Steinbeck do? This is the only character in the book who also can read. He's very intelligent. And they include him in their world. They play uh, games, obviously, um, they play horseshoes. Yeah, they play horseshoes. I wonder if they gloat when they win. I'm sh- well. I'm sure they do. Everyone <laughs> should. But but the the black character is the best one. So he's highly educated and for, for their world, and he's highly skilled and he's highly talented. And although he can't quite get into the bunkhouse, he's almost there. He's in their world. And so Steinbeck is kind of leaving this futuristic hope, and he does this in several ways that makes people kind of hang in there with them. And because we see the dark in the world, that's clearly obvious. Well, that's interesting. And and I feel like when he introduces the character of Slim, this is a big ray of hope in the middle of that dark little book. And we'll talk a little (laughs) bit more about that. Which So having said all that, I want to get back to what this book is really about, and it's these characters. Now, characterization is a strategy that authors use to draw you into their character, into their world to breathe life so that you can kind of put these people in the movie screen of your mind. It's why we have a hard time, you know, watching a movie about a book that we've read because we have these things sketched out in our minds. The movie can never be as inventive as what you did in your own mind. No, we have it in our own way. And so Steinbeck has an interesting and unusual way of doing this. Normally, uh, authors... Because if it's a novel, they just directly do a lot of direct description. And he does this a little bit. Right off the bat, he's going to physically describe who these guys are. They're these two guys wearing denim trousers, denim coat, brass buttons, shapeless hats, and carrying um, blanket rolls over their shoulder. The first man is described as being small with a quick, dark face. Whatever, a quick 
face is. (laughs) He's alert. Yes, with strong hands and a thin, bony nose. The other guy is described as being the very opposite. He's huge with a shapeless face. Again, what that is, I don't know. With large, pale eyes. And he drags his feet the way a bear drags his paws and his arms hang loosely to the side. So what we're going to notice when we get uh, to the bunkhouse is all the other characters are going to be introduced. Like They're given this straight physical description, but then the characters are going to speak for themselves and they're going to react to each other. And it's primarily through what they say and what they do that we learn about the kind of people that they actually are. And I want to throw in an observation here. First of all, there's a couple of characters that enter the chapter. They don't even get a name. We have to. Fi- I have to figure out later on who they are. And Steinbeck doesn't give any of the chapters a title. There's not even a number. He just starts. Uh, it's some interesting minimalism going on there. That's true. Uh, we're supposed to draw a lot of conclusions about who these people are and what they're like by listening to them talk, watching how they behave, and figuring out all this stuff right. as you go. Uh, the second character, who you're right, they don't name them at first. The right. first man, the second man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you only learn who who they are when other people address them. The narrator really never does. Right. And so we're going to find out um, that the second character is going to be compared to more than just the bear paw that we saw. He's going to be compared to a horse because he's going to put his face into a still pool of water, hat and all. So he puts his whole head into the water and just gulps it down. This is obviously gross and unsafe. Uh, his language is really fragmented. It's not just a country dialect. Now, all of them have dialect, every character in the book, because they're ignorant people. But um, the second character here, his speech is much closer to how a child would speak. That's good. Look what I done. That sort of thing. He's also too deferential to the other man. He's constantly seeking uh, the other character's affirmation, which we're going to learn that the other man, the small man's George, and the big guy is uh, Lenny. And Lenny is always obedient, which of course isn't normal. Will we go in, George? Why, sure, George. I remember that. But what do we do then? He can, and then you see, wait a minute, this guy can't remember anything. He doesn't know what he's been doing. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. He doesn't seem to understand consequences of past actions. So within the first two pages of introducing Lenny, every reader is going to clearly tell that there's something wrong with him. In the whole book, we really never know exactly what that is. Mm -hmm. He's clearly got a deficiency, um, and it it has put him in a childlike state, but... At the same time, Lenny is clever and manipulative, too, as we see in Chapter 1. Um, George threatens to get rid of him, and when George realizes he was too mean, Lenny keeps playing up the, I could just leave and go live in a cave. You know, you'd be fine without me. Because there are several spots where they have this dialogue as they're walking along. They're walking to the ranch to, to this job they're supposed to be at, and they're having this dialogue. And several times, George is saying things like, you know, he says, God Almighty, if I was alone, I could live so easy. And he goes on to say, and what do I got? George went on furiously. I got you. You can't keep a job, and you lose me every job I get. You get in trouble. You do bad things. You keep me in hot water all the time. I wish I could put you in a cage with about a million mice and let you have fun. So he's he's venting all this, and uh, 
he starts to feel bad about it, but he goes on later on. When I think of the swell time I could have had without you, I go nuts. I never get no peace. And then George finally realizes he goes too far. And then, you know, Lenny's kind of like, oh, now George feels guilty. I'll make him feel guilty. So he's not without his abilities. No, and we see this complexity of personality and the character of George. Now, I want to say this. George is us. We're so, This is kind of an allegory if you want to look at it that way. I'm not sure if it is, but we're he's the every regular person kind of person Mm -hmm. and Lenny is not us he's kind of the child wise fool maybe if you want to look at it that way but George is angry and he has a lot of anger and we see this in the language he uses a lot of profanity now I want to make an editorial comment in most books when we there's cussing we just kind of read right through it we want to stay true to the text but we're going to take exception to this book because it's too much it's too profane and i don't want uh you know to blow up this mic i mean this book was banned for a long time for a lot of reasons and one of the reasons was the language is so hostile and angry especially when we get to some of the things that they say uh in the racial contract context it's too much and I can feel it when I read it and you really cringe. It's very, very emotional. Which is interesting because some people would say, why would Steinbeck put language like that in a book that would obviously create problems and things of that nature? Well, interestingly enough, cuss words have a function. Cuss words are supposed to express anger. You choose that word deliberately because you want to express anger. Now, I know in our current culture... Cuss words have become lost flippant. Yeah. yeah, they've become flippant, and and people use them to describe. Oh, this is a wonderful effing cookie, you know. Right. And so they've they've lost their direction, and they lost. But in Steinbeck's time, the cuss words were meant to, and they're to, very powerful. Yeah, and it gets across. These are yes. angry, lonely people. So yes. it's by design, uh, except when <clears throat> Lenny cusses, which is hysterical because he's trying to copy George's <laughs> speech patterns. And so when George cusses out of anger, Lenny repeats him, but he's not angry. No, it's so it sounds it's, ridiculous. So it's, and it is ridiculous. And but here's my point: George is an angry person, and he's resentful. He has this resentment for Lenny, which we don't understand because why are you even with the guy? But uh, we see this. Uh, conflicting thing going on in his life that that starts off right there from the very beginning and of course because he's having to fuss at him all the time Mm -hmm. he's drinking out of this dead pool of water and then the very next thing we see is that um he's getting a mouse (laughs) which is weird uh so what happens is um lenny has got this uh mouse and um he's petting it and then, you know, he, George has to throw it, throw it away. But why does he have to throw the mouse away? Because it's dead. And why is it dead? <laughs> because he killed it. And how did he kill it? He petted it too hard. Wow. I can... <laughs> what, what a way to go. So, uh, but here's, and I want to talk about that, the mouse in a minute in more detail. But what I'm trying to say is um, we identify with George but we also resent the fact that he's so mean. Right. I, I read this book in class, and the kids are always saying, why is he bullying the kid with special needs? We would never do that. That's so cruel. And you don't really uh, understand that dynamic mm-hmm. almost throughout the whole book. 
thing. Why are you using this abusive, cruel language? And why does Lenny just take it? And, and he doesn't even understand it and, well, until, until he doesn't. I'd like to point out, too, that in later chapters in the book, uh, George gets questioned by a number of characters as to why are you with this guy? Why are you in this relationship with him? So lots of people are wondering. All right, so let's talk about the mouse. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so you have to understand a little bit about symbols because obviously the mouse is a symbol. And so somebody says, well, why is it obvious that the symbol is a mouse? Uh, How are we supposed to know that it's a symbol? Well, there's an easy answer for that. Um, It's in the title. I mean, things are in, when things are, authors use really three strategies to show you that something is a a symbol. One of it is they give it an unusual level of importance of something that shouldn't be very important. Like, why are we so obsessed with this mouse? Or something that comes up all the time. If something comes up all the time, then we know that it's also uh, going to be uh, a symbol. So in this, and I get the question all the time, is everything a book and a symbol? And the answer, of course, uh, has been famously answered by Sigmund Freud, who really didn't say this, but people say that he did. <laughs> okay. He said, do you know the quote? Are you familiar with it? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And yeah. we won't digress. No, uh, but that people say that all the time in regard to literature because sometimes things are just what they are. They're not meant to be anything deeper, but then sometimes that they're not. Uh, sometimes that there is something there to... Uh, to kind of give away. So, and the author is going to try to tell you what um, is important and what's a symbol in a book and speak through subtext. So, for example, if a friend, if you ask a friend, where's the money stashed? Uh, and, and they'll say, oh, don't, don't you want to sit on the sofa? The yellow sofa? The pillow on the sofa is yellow. Don't you think it's colorful and bright? Well, the, she just said sofa four or five times and the right. pillow. And so they give you the that kind of, oh, that must be where it is. Mm-hmm. It's the same sort of thing uh, with symbols, you know, that you see this here with the mouse. There's And and then again with the rabbits. There's too much attention giving, given to them. And so it's supposed to jar your mind. This mouse is hiding something. There's money behind the mouse, if you want to take my metaphor right there. Okay, that's, a, that's taking it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we know that the mouse comes from the Robert Poems, uh, the Robert Burns poem of mm-hmm. Mice and Men. Uh, and of course, the famous line within the play, within the poem. But it's a very strange and layered symbol. Uh, and we must, I think, look at the mouse, even here from the beginning. So what happens? We do, because um, Lenny's constantly bringing up mice and rabbits and puppies and soft things. These are all things that elicit caring and love and gentleness until he kills them (laughs) accidentally. Yes, and we're going to... We're giving away a little bit, but yes, that's exactly what happens. And then he, of course, is incapable of taking any kind of responsibility uh, for his actions. He says that the mouse is at fault uh, because it was too small. Um, we're left with some under uh, some questions about well, well, what's what's going on? And we see this here, this connection again made here. And I'm, I'm afraid to talk about this. I guess I'll just give it away. So here we go. We have Lenny petting the mouse too hard, and he gets killed. 
and then George takes the mouse and throws it in the woods. Well, we're going to find out later on that, uh, you know, is Lenny like a pet too? Or, you know, there's a a strange connection there. And are we supposed to be reading some foreshadowing here? And of course we don't know. All you're supposed to know now is that that's kind of weird. Right. And one thing I like to discuss with you is that we don't go too far off into the weeds um, ah. uh, too far off in the weeds in literary analysis because I feel like what what I as a listener want to know is all right tell me the stuff that helps me understand the story now if I truly love the story I'll go into all the deep elaborations later on well then you'll like this about the rabbits uh, you know the rabbits uh, show up in Looney Tunes. You pointed that out to me. I didn't <laughs> know <do>. that. <laughs> yeah, Looney Tunes did a number of cartoons in the 1940s using characters from *Of Mice and Men*, and um, we'll try to put a link on the on the website to a YouTube so you can look at it and get the full effect of it. And the voice that you used a few minutes ago when you were acting out the part of Lenny is very similar to the voice characterization they use in the cartoons. So, it might be because I just watched that a few minutes well, ago. It's or so funny. It could be they just <laughs> set the standard for how we're going to do Lenny. Probably so. But anyway, all that to say is we're going to see you know these bunnies and these rabbits. They're going to kind of come up again and again and again, and they're going to ask questions that we're going to kind of answer uh, throughout the course of the book. Okay, and before we move on and start talking to chapters one and two, I want to point out that um, what Steinbeck does as an author, he's he he doesn't really ever go into George's mind. No, he or, never does. And to me, that was significant because um, it's a signature mark that makes this book different from other books. Because normally, uh, if you're, I mean, if you're not paying attention, you might not understand that we don't really go into George's thought processes because most authors will take you inside the internal mind processes and thinking of a character to help you understand who they are and what they're doing. George just like has nothing. And these two people have no history. As a matter of fact, the only history in this whole book is the incident that happened in Weed, California a couple of weeks ago that they were running from. So there's a lack of insight through their the character's own internal thinking. Well, and that's... Uh, by design, I heard one yes. guy call him. He's a mute narrator, which is interesting. Well, it's a signature that stands out to me that makes it different from these other books. I do think it's important to point out the story. We find out a little bit of the frustration with George with Lenny because he tells him the story. He says, "Don't you remember mm-hmm. what happened in in Weeds and what had happened in Weeds?" As he had. Uh, gotten accused of raping a girl and he wasn't trying to rape her he just thought her dress was soft and he kept petting it and petting treatment. it yes giving her the mouse treatment and she screamed bloody murder and of course they had to run for their lives and that's how they ended up uh where they are then and of course we find out that he has an aunt who kept trying to uh, aunt clara who kept mm-hmm. trying to help him uh and tried to give him like a rubber um mouse and that wasn't that didn't work because right. it wasn't really what he wanted. So uh, we we see that uh, in in several ways. All right. Uh, anything else we want to talk about in chapter one? We see well, these two guys. Yes. We see the backstory. Yeah. So chapter one has three parts. It has the introduction of the characters, George and Lenny emerging out of the woods, walking towards the ranch. It spends a lot of time talking about the relationship between them, and then the chapter is going to end basically with the dream the dream that the two of them have 
of having a place, having a home, having a stability, uh, living off the fat of the land is going to be a, a phrase they use over and over again. So we introduced their dream. And I think it's interesting uh, to talk about. I want to read that section. What is the dream? Because I think this is a dream that people identify with in a big way. When they read the book. Well, my first pass interpretation on this, first of all, this whole book is about isolation and loneliness. And the dream is having a place that you belong and the place that you're there with your, your relationships and your connectedness. Well, we'll have a big vegetable patch and a rabbit hutch and chickens. And when it rains in the winter, we'll just say the hell with going to work and we'll build up a fire in the stove and sit around and... Listen to the rain coming down on the roof. Nuts. I ain't got time for no more. I mean, I mean, he's cutting off, but he's going to talk about a little bit later that they're going to have all these rabbits. And then it even gets to be uh, fantastical. And just um, what he's going to say, Are we? can we have different color rabbits, George? And George is going to say, sure we will. Red and blue and green rabbits, Lenny, millions of them. So, and he's going to say, furry ones, George, like I've seen in the fair in Sacramento. Sure, furry ones. So, of course, the dream doesn't even have to have an element of realism to it. You know, it's, no, it's a dream. The dream is hope. And, and I think that's a, an interesting subtext that goes on right here. Uh, you know, they have varying degrees. To Lenny, it's a real hope. To George, it's like a, an out there hope possible, but it does represent hope and it represents purposefulness. They're drifting around doing this ranch hand work with no purpose and no reason and no future. And so the, uh, the dream represents having purpose. And having an absence of wants, you know, not needing yeah. uh, everything else, which, you know, those are, they're nice things and they're elements of of a lot of people's dreams. They're elements of my dream. Right. And so through the dialogue of chapter one, all the major issues of the book are introduced. Um, but we really don't have any idea what direction things are going to take. You know, we've got Lenny's dream, George's dream. There's this extremely complicated relationship between these two men. There's guilt versus no guilt. We get the promise of a pet, a puppy. Well, we introduce the idea of loneliness um, guys like us are the loneliest guys in the world. And of course, we have the foreshadowing, which is if you just, he's speaking to Lenny, if you just happen to get in trouble like you always done before, I want you to come right here and hide in the brush. That's oh an important thing to remember when we get towards the end. And of course, the story's going to end uh, with the dimming lights, kind of like I talked about last time, uh, as if it were a set, the red light dims. On the coal coals of the fire, and then the the chapter ends, and then of course chapter two, scene two, right, completely different location, the bunkhouse. But yet, he, like he does in every untitled chapter, he begins each chapter with an elaborate description of the environment. And uh, so, in chapter two, we're going to be in the bunkhouse. We're going to meet in order of appearance. We're going to meet the boss. Then we're going to meet Curly. Then we're going to meet Slim. We will meet. Carlson, and then we will meet Curly's wife. Yes. Uh, the description of the environment this time isn't the beautiful, serene outdoors. <laughs> it's a harsh, sterile, long, rectangular building. The walls are whitewashed. The floor is unpainted. Three of the walls have windows. Listen to this detail. One has a door. There are eight bunks. Above each bunk is an apple box that's been repurposed to be a shelf. Then everyone puts their 
their personal things in. And then there's this list of all the personal effects that would go in the box. One of those I think is interesting. He says is those Western magazines ranchmen love to read and scoff at and secretly believe in. (laughs) And I think this is interesting because uh, we're talking about dreams and you see this idea of manhood presented in these magazines, these ready, sexy men turned cowboy with, you know, their guns and their lassos. They kill mice. (laughs) With a lasso? Well, you know, they do. (laughs) They kill flies off the back of their horse. Oh, with a whip. Yes, and... There's authority okay. and leadership and manly talent and bravery and that sort of thing. And then uh, that's in the magazine. Well, I want to say this, too. <laughs> Those magazines reflect this dream of rugged individualism, which is part of the American national psyche. And yet Steinbeck's book is about, well, this is what real rugged yes. individualism looks like. It looks like being a drifting ranch hand. And it's, nat- it's unglorious. It's natural. It's cruel. It's what we're fixing to see after you introduce the actual people. And, of course, the first guy comes in, and he's described, just like you said, no name, an old man dressed in blue jeans. He carried a big push broom in his left hand. And then, of course, uh, he's going to you know, say, oh, the boss was expecting you last night. And he pointed with his right arm, and we're going to see that he doesn't have a hand. He only right. has one hand and of course this is are the hands a theme the in this hands book? are a thing okay. we noticed, i pointed it out with uh lenny and um george you know and, and now we're gonna see that and it, it's kind of a pun too because you know they're all farm hands and then you know different well, types of different hands. types of hands and poor candy he's only like half of a hand because he's crippled and he can't do anything he can't buck barley so he doesn't certainly doesn't meet the manly ideal and of course um he's going to introduce us to everybody else because he's also a bit of a gossip he is uh yeah he does <laughs> and uh, i want to point out a little side note i'll give you a fun gary fact right here that okay. goes on this when i was in high school i bucked hay oh i didn't know that yes it's a miserable job what is bucking i'm getting ready to tell you anybody listening who knows what bucking hay bales is they know it's a miserable job so they go out there and they cut the hay and the and the baler bales it up in those little 55 pound bales and what you do as a high school kid as i did is you walk behind this truck throughout this whole field picking up the hay bales and throwing them on the truck because it has to go be put in the barn and so bucking bales means you're walking behind a machine all day long, picking up these 55-pound bales and throwing up on a truck. And well, it's that just explains why, uh, why Lenny would be good at it. Yes. he's a big guy. All right. Yeah. So what we're going to see is this level of tension with each character that comes in. And the, one, the first one that comes in uh, after the candy is, which we don't know that's his name, the old man. We have to find that out later. Yeah, is the boss. And the boss is a little stocky man. He's fat-legged, it says. <laughs> He's, oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. He stands in the doorway. He wears blue jean trousers, a flannel shirt, a black unbuttoned vest, and a black coat. His thumbs were stuck in his belt. And, he, of course, he has a soiled brown Stetson hat. And he's going to wear high-heeled boots and spurs to prove he's not a laboring man. And he's all mad. Right. Because they were supposed to be there that morning uh, to buck hay and their well buck hay buck barley yeah and he missed a half a day's work from these two guys and they're gonna have this kind of an interrogation and of course george I, 
had gone over this, this we didn't talk about in chapter one, but had said, whatever you do, Lenny, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. Right. You'll get us mm-hmm. fired. And of course, George makes up several lies as to why they're even together. And the boss is interrogating them in an uncomfortable fashion. And I want to go, we'll go back and point out the boots. The boots are a symbol of hierarchy. And he's the boss. He's the boss. And his son wears boots and nobody else wears those kind of boots. Nope. So George says, he's, he's my cousin. He got kicked in the head by a horse when he was a kid. And of course, the boss uh, is going to accept this. Even though later on, George is, Lenny's going to say, that was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. And he says they're related, which we find out is a lie too. So, right. Which begs the question, well, why are you together and we'll we'll let the listeners know we never know we don't we will never find out because there's no history and there's no internal thought which is Steinbeck style no all right so we're gonna meet um the next guy that comes in and he's a young man coming to the bunkhouse a thin young man with a brown face with brown eyes and a head of tightly curled hair he wore a work glove on his left hand and like the boss, he wore high heel boots. And of course, he comes in and says, "Have you seen my old man?" And uh, Candy is going to kind of engage him. And then uh, we're going to see that this guy has an immediate animosity towards Lenny. Mm-hmm. And it's for one particular reason. It's because Lenny is a big guy, and Curly's a small guy. Yeah, he says. Actually, he says that. Curly's like a lot of little guys. He hates big guys. He's all the time picking scraps with big guys. Kind of like he's mad at him because he ain't a big guy. You've seen little guys like that, ain't you? Always scrappy. So we find out that he's a really good fighter. He's a boxer. Mm-hmm. He's a fighter. And he can take on a lot of bigger guys. And George is going to say, uh, sure, I've seen plenty of little guys. But this Curly better not make no mistake about Lenny. Lenny ain't handy, but this curly punk is going to get hurt if he messes with Lenny. And, of course, uh, the other guy's going to say, Well, Curly's pretty handy. Never did seem right to me. Suppose Curly jumps a big guy and licks him. Everybody says that a game guy Curly is. And suppose he does the same thing and gets licked. And everybody says the big guy ought to pick on somebody his own size. And maybe they gang up on the big guy. Never did seem right to me. Seems like Curly ain't giving nobody a chance. No, and I want to say this about Curly, too. Um, From the body language description that we're given about Lenny, it's obvious that Lenny tries to, uh, well, he just gives off an air of meekness and not aggressiveness. And he's certainly not giving off an air of a man who's trying to establish a pecking order. As a matter of fact, Lenny's busy trying to be invisible, even though he's the biggest person in the room. And I think instinctively and intuitively, that's the exact kind of big guy that Curly goes after because he knows before they even engage in a fight that he's got Lenny intimidated. But George is going to say something very interesting that I think is very telling. He just says when he's talking about them fighting, he says, Lenny don't know no rules. Right. And that's a scary thought. (laughs) Yeah, well, it is. The other thing to point out, well, there's a couple more things to point out about um, this, the Curly. He got married a couple of weeks ago. That's not very long. Mm -hmm. He's gotten married two weeks ago, and of course, he's cockier than since. And then he's uh, doing this thing. You seen that glove on his left hand? And George is going to say, well... 
I seen it. That glove's full of Vaseline. Vaseline? What the hell for? Well, I tell you what. Curly says he's keeping that hand soft for his wife. So now we see what kind of hand that Curly is. He's a disgusting, <laughs> I mean, gross human being. <laughs> I mean, no, I, no doubt. I don't know how you can say it any better than that. He's a foul man. Well, and George seizes on that immediately and gives his version of, ooh. Ooh, he says, that's a dirty thing to tell around. And, of course, Candy loves the idea that he gets to share the best gossip of the whole place. Well, and since George had a negative reaction, you know, at least Candy knows, oh, I got a friend I can trust now. And then he says this, where do you see Curly's wife? <laughs> and, and we're going to here next, right? Yep. But before we do, I do want to bring out one more thing. And I didn't notice this until like the third time I read this book. George is playing cards the mm-hmm. whole time. A hand of cards. Put on pump. The more, puns go on. More hands. But he plays solitaire. So mm-hmm. he's playing by himself. And I, I don't know if you've ever played solitaire, but it's almost impossible to win. You're going to lose. That's one game that you're going to lose at, unless you cheat. Which if you is, play by the rules, you'll lose. Yeah, yes. I always cheat because I don't want to lose. But most of the time when you play solitaire, you're playing against yourself and you're never going to win. So I have a side question here. When you win at solitaire and no one's around, do you still gloat? Of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, they get uh, uh, talking about um, Curly's wife. And uh, we are introduced to her. First of all, Curly's wife is never going to be given a name. Right. She doesn't have a name. But she's called a tart and a Lulu. <laughs> now, <laughs> we don't use those words anymore. We have updated language. Oh, well, yeah. But uh, a tart is a promiscuous woman. A Lulu is a tramp, a trashy woman. So th- they have a lot of derogatory terms. And they always reference, they always call her that. Right. Yeah. And she shows up unannounced in the doorway when they don't expect her. Yes, and of course, uh, um, Lenny doesn't know uh, that that she's a danger, uh, but she's standing there looking in, and it says she has a full, rouged lips with wide-spaced eyes, heavily made up. Her fingernails were red. Her hair hung in little rolled clusters like sausages. She wore a cotton house dress and red mules on the insteps, of which were little bouquets of red ostrich feathers. Which, she looks like a very attractive woman, until the other description is, her voice had a nasal, brittle quality. (laughs) Yes. Well, she's very sexy. Red, 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 red. That's a sexy color. But her hair is in clusters like sausages. You couldn't use a better word to describe. So Ringlets. Right. But it's not an attractive way to say ringlets. Mm -hmm. So she's got a... a, To me, it's a trashy description Mm -hmm. of of a woman who could be attractive but but isn't. She's too much. Mm -hmm. So anyway, she's in there and, and she always claiming to be looking for Curly. And she goes, you're the new fellas. Just come in, ain't ya? Yeah. And he goes, sometimes Curly's in here. And, of course, George says, well, he ain't now. Well, if he ain't, I guess I better look someplace else, she said playfully. And Lenny is just going to watch her. He's fascinated. George tries to brush her off. Brush her off and she's going to smile archily, it says, and twitched her body. Can't nobody... Can't blame a person for looking, she said. There were footsteps behind, and then she turns her head. Hi, Slim. 
<laughs> so there you go. Oh, my. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. And I would like to point out that she is exercising some power. Yes. However you want to view it. She is yes. going in there and, and demonstrating her ability to unnerve this group of men. And she enjoys doing that. And, uh, of course, when she leaves, George is going to say, what a tramp and all kind of things of that nature. And Lenny's going to go, she sure was pretty. But the more they discuss it, Lenny's finally going to have this reaction. He's just going to say, I don't like this place. Yeah, Let's this clear ain't up. no good place. So he intuitively begins to feel this is dangerous. For I want to get out of here. Yeah. And then they make a decision. We're going to just get as much money. For two bids, I'd shove out of here. If we can just get a few dollars in the poke, we'll shove off and maybe go to the American River and pan gold, and they're going to try to find somebody else. So we have this tension. We have the boss gets mad at him, and then Curly gets mad at him. Then they meet Curly's wife. She's dangerous. She's dangerous, and, and they're all uncomfortable. And then we're going to have whew, a little bit of release because the tall man is going to come in, and he is... He held a crushed Stetson head under his arm. He's going to comb his long, black, damp hair straight back. He's the Western ideal. Like the others, he wore blue jeans and a short denim jacket. When he had finished combing his hair, he moved into the room. And he moved with a majesty only achieved by royalty and master craftsmen. Wow, that's an incredible (laughs) description. And he has a great Western name, Slim. And it goes on to say, he was a jerkline skinner. The prince of the ranch, capable of driving 10, 16, even 20 mules with a single line of leaders. But I like this part too. There was a gravity in his manner and a quiet so profound that all talk stopped when he spoke. His authority was so great that his word was taken on any subject, be it politics or love. This was Slim, the jerkline skinner, his hatchet face was ageless. <laughs> so he's a goddess. I mean, a god. Right. A Greek god. A Greek god. It goes on to say, his ear heard more than was said to him, <laughs> and his slow speech had overtones not of thought, but of understanding beyond thought. Well, and you've you skipped over one of the best things. Uh, it says, he was capable of killing a fly on the wheeler's butt with a bull whip without touching them. So he has skills with the whip. I told you it's the <laughs> okay. Western ideal. <laughs> yes, and, and he's omniscient almost. Oh, he's the man. Then he says this, his hands, large and lean, were as delicate in their action as those of a temple dancer. Well, I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> well, like, you know, if you well, think of belly dancers in their hands. Apparently he has all that, that kind of... So he's got the kingly sons. hands. His hands are perfect. Everything about him is perfect. Right. Okay. So even down to that detail. Even down to that detail. And, of course, he's going to come in, uh, and um, we're going to immediately after that meet... Uh, the last guy that lives in the bunkhouse together with them. And I want to point out that this guy doesn't have a lot of description. A powerful, big-stomached man. <laughs> yes. And we don't even find out about his hands. And the reason why I, I, I point that out is he's driven by his stomach, which is going to really mm-hmm. kind of be the only thing that, that he's about. And he gets a name first off. My name's Carlson. And then they're going to say, I'm George Milton. Here's Lenny Small. Can I make a little comment right here? Of course. George Milton. What was the comment you made to me about the connection to Milton? Oh, well, we'll, we'll talk about next week. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, there's a, it, it should, the name's supposed to go, huh? 
Uh, that reminds me of something. And we'll and, find, and out, we'll find out what it is next week. Yeah, good point. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, glad to meet you, Carlson said. Uh, he ain't very small. He chuckled at his own junk. Ain't small at all. Uh, and then he immediately turns to Slim because he has some business. And it's mean business. He wants to kill Candy's dog. Well, he has an explanation for why he wants to. Yes, the dog's old. And smells bad. And smells bad. And uh, he says, can't you just give... Can't, didn't your dog have puppies? Can't you give him a dog and then we can shoot Candy's dog? Well, that is so mean to say. Right. Uh, you know, anyone who's a dog... Well, I don't have a pet, but I have had pets. And one of the reasons why I don't have a pet... Is it's so sad when they die? I mean, <laughs> I true. remember thinking, why am I bringing sadness like this into my life? It's so, and here he is wanting to kill one of his quote friends' dogs because he's near blind, can't eat, candy can't feed him milk, he can't chew nothing, and he seems so he's he's in, uncomfortable for us. I don't want to have to deal with him. Let's just shoot him, right? And of course. Um, and his his fix for that situation was to shoot the dog and then give him a new puppy that Slim had. Puppy. And, of course, Lenny sees all this. Mm-hmm. And he can't think outside of his own world at all. He goes, oh! Immediately fixated on soft, <laughs> furry puppies. He said, yes. George said, I heard him, Lenny. I'll ask him. A brown and white one, Lenny cried excitedly. So, George already knows before Lenny can say anything. Oh dear, Lenny's going to want a puppy, and because they had just talked about that before, so they go out the door, uh, and of course, um, the sunshine. Just like the closing of the last chapter, we're going to have some lighting instructions. Is going to lay in a thin line under the window. From a distance, there could be heard a rattle of dishes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to kind of end things up right here when it sounds like there might be some resolution and comfort who bursts in right before the end of the chapter curly yes and who's curly looking for who is he looking for he's looking for his wife which is a theme a repetitive theme looking for his wife and um so we're going to end up the the chapter with this idea george says to lenny you know lenny i'm scared i'm going to tangle with that bastard myself i hate his guts yeah, that's a mean thing. There's The guy's mean, that's all yeah. I have to say. All right, uh, we're going to close up. A couple of final thoughts. Um, as you think about what this chapter means, besides just the story, uh, I want to talk about, like I said, getting back to this naturalistic idea. We see him drawing these people in a very naturalistic way. Uh, Sylvia Cook, who's a famous critic, she says that, Steinbeck is going to organize uh, these groups of human beings so that we can see them behaving as a single organism with each individual members behaving as cells in the organism. So look at them as a bunkhouse, a community, Mm -hmm. but each one is going to relate to each other in an interesting way. She's also going to say that Steinbeck is concerned with how things exist rather than how or why They have come to be the way they are. Thus the no interest in the background of history or the internal thought processes. Exactly. And then she's going to say that there's a holistic sense of unity and interdependence of all life on each other and on the environment. So what is the relationship between how does the environment 
mold the people and the people mold the environment. There's that interconnectedness Mm -hmm. that we're going to see kind of develop throughout. Uh, There's no question that there's a lot of fatalism in the book. Uh, It feels wrong and mean, uh, even if it is kind of natural. It's not really humanity at its best. And Steinbeck was indeed a believer in describing people as they really are. But in in some ways, you know, he's going to challenge our values by making us look at this reality. In other words, this is who you are, but there is also this theme of brotherhood. You know, we could be better than this, perhaps. And I think that's kind of why we love it. We know that the dark deterministic element of life is out there. We can see it. We see what he's seeing. But yet there's this love, you know, a bond that runs a little bit deeper. It's not a sexual love. It's not really even a friendship. There's kind of this human sacrifice that isn't a part of nature. That's not what Mm -hmm. the Darwinist natural environment would ever see. But we know that exists. And we see that undercurrent in the story. And I think that's going to kind of be what brings it together. Well, I agree. And so I'm going to kind of give us a very simple summation of what we did. Uh, In chapter one, we introduced the characters, we introduced their relationship, and then we talked about their dream. In chapter two, we meet all the other characters who are going to move the story along and their role and how it affects the dream. That's the quick, easy summation of what we looked at today. And then next week, we're going to get into the drama of it all. Less philosophy, more action. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being with us today. And we always, always like to encourage everybody to uh, check out our webpage, howtolovelitpodcast.com, to follow us on our Facebook page, the How to Love Lit Podcast Facebook page, our Instagram page. Connect with us. We would love to connect with you and hear more from you. So thanks for being with us again. And don't forget to check out Looney Tunes of Mice and Men. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.